Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit to work through your word today to give us confidence in our faith, trust in you, and, and motivation for our lives. Bless us as we walk into your word now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Christians are gullible. Christians are easily fooled. Christians are so desperate for a solution to life's big problems that they will hold on to any theory that brings them hope, regardless of whether it's actually true. Bless their hearts, they will actually hold on to such a ridiculous, crazy idea as the resurrection from the dead. You think that's a fair characterization of Christians? Well, fair or not, there's a lot of people that view Christians in this exact way. Um, I've talked to lots of atheists and agnostics who really bear no ill will towards Christians. They say, listen, I get it. I understand the need to believe in something good and hopeful in this scary, dark world. And, and honestly, sometimes I wish I could believe these things myself. But I can't, because I'm not a person of blind faith. I'm a person that needs evidence. So how would you respond uh, to something like that? I'll pray for you. Doesn't really address the problem. How do you respond to someone who needs that evidence? Let me offer one response. Maybe you could respond, you're in good company. Because Jesus' disciples were not people of blind faith either. And Jesus' disciples had a need for evidence, just like you do. So as you know, today we're starting a new sermon series. The next six weeks we're going to be studying this series called Witnesses. And in this series, we're going to hear from a man who saw with his own eyes the stone that had been rolled away. And he stood with his own feet inside the empty tomb of Jesus. And he heard with his own ears the testimony of these women that he knew and trusted who all said that they had seen Jesus alive, risen from the grave, and he still didn't believe at first. In this series, and you know, later today, we're going to hear from a man who, when his ten best friends all said they had seen Jesus risen from the dead, he insisted, unless I put my finger into the literal nail wound in his hand, I will not believe it. And he didn't. Until he did. In this series, we're going to hear from a man who was so skeptical about Jesus' resurrection that he had devoted his entire life to eradicating this lie of Christianity and wiping it from the face of the earth until Jesus appeared to him, and he changed his mind as well. But remember, like these skeptics, these doubters, these were not fringe people hovering around the edges of Christianity, like not sure if they should be involved. These were the primary leaders. This is Peter and James and John and, and members of the 12 disciples. This is the Apostle Paul. It's the leaders of the early Christian church, and these were not people who operated on blind faith just for something that might make them feel a little better. They were just as amazed by the claim of Jesus' resurrection as we are. They felt just as much of a need for evidence that this could possibly be true as we do. So, in our first reading today, we heard uh, the opening verses from 1 Corinthians 15. And as we mentioned, this is known as the great resurrection chapter of the Bible. 
It's all about Jesus' resurrection and what this means for us and our future and our resurrection. But what's so interesting about those verses that we heard is as Paul starts this whole discussion, before he says anything, really, about what Jesus' resurrection means for our future, he starts by talking about the eyewitnesses and the evidence that proves that this event happened in the first place. Here's what he had said. We heard these verses before. He said, this is what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. But you look at that paragraph, the first sentence is Jesus died and rose, and the whole rest of it is eyewitnesses and evidence. He didn't just rise. He rose and then. He appeared to Cephas, he appeared to the twelve, he appeared to these 500 people. Most of them are still alive. You could go talk to them if you were a reader of Paul's letter, and they would be happy to verify you what they saw. And then he appeared to James, who had been a skeptic up until that point. And then he appeared to the apostles again, and then he appeared to the apostles again, and then he appeared to the apostles again. And then he appeared to Paul, the chief persecutor of Christianity, on the road. And it is only now, after like throwing down this impressive list of eyewitnesses, it's only now that Paul begins to talk about what this means. The results of the resurrection for our faith, for our life on earth, for our future, for our resurrection someday. But why does Paul take all this time at the beginning to line up the witnesses and the eyewitness testimony? Well, it's because the early Christians didn't operate on blind faith. The facts were important. That evidence was important. In fact, it was crucially important for all these New Testament writers to show evidence that this had actually happened, that Jesus actually rose from the dead, because if they didn't have some evidence for it, nobody would ever have taken Christianity seriously. In, in the last sermon of this series, so this is going to be in five weeks, we're going to hear again from Paul as he stands on trial before the Roman authorities. And at his trial, he says very similar things about Jesus' resurrection. Here's what he says. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. Real evidence, real eyewitnesses of a real resurrection. This was the certainty that the early church was built on. And this is the reason why Jesus' disciples were willing to devote their entire lives to spreading the gospel message, even when it meant imprisonment and torture and death. This is the reason that in the space of 300 years, Christianity went from this tiny few dozen people being persecuted to being the predominant religion in the Roman Empire. Christianity was not built from the start on blind faith and wishful thinking just so people could feel better about themselves. It was based on fact. And particularly this one amazing fact that three days after being killed in front of witnesses and buried in front of witnesses, Jesus Christ of Nazareth came out of his grave alive. It really happened. And Paul spends the rest of this chapter unfolding what this means for us, for our life, for our eternal destiny. But, but it's a big claim. It is a big deal. 
And so it's no wonder that people were skeptical about it at first. As we now work into our sermon text from John 20, John gives us a glimpse of the chaos and confusion that was going on at Easter Sunday. So first, very early while it's still dark, some women go out to the grave and they see that it's empty. And so they come running back to the city and tell the disciples that it's empty. So Peter and John run to the grave and they look in and they see that it's empty and they don't know what to make of this. Meanwhile, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene and shows her that he's alive. So she runs and tells the disciples and they're thinking, no, this can't possibly be. There must be some other explanation. It's chaotic because this is what happens when a person rises from the dead. Nobody knows quite what to do. But then night fell. And now they saw for themselves. On the evening of that first day of the week, when disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came, stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Somehow, incredibly, he had done it. Jesus had actually come back to life. And there no longer could be any doubt. Except from the one guy who wasn't there. Right? The last one, Thomas, who now took his doubt and his skepticism to kind of an extreme. It says, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples that night that Jesus came. So the other disciples all told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So let me ask you this question. What is Thomas's deal? Why is he so stubborn? What reason could his ten best friends all have to gang up on him and play this trick on him, this morbid, twisted trick when they're all mourning the loss of their potential savior who has died? Why would they be staging this, what, to mess with him? It's not just his ten disciple friends, it's all of these women who now have seen Jesus. By this point, the, the resurrection has been proven to Thomas beyond all reasonable doubt. But he just refuses to accept it. So, what does Jesus do to Thomas? Does he punish him? Does he kick him out? Does he fire him from his job as one of the 12 disciples because, you know, he didn't have enough faith to be one of them? No. Jesus loves Thomas. And so he bends over backwards just for him. He goes above and beyond just for him. You see this throughout the Gospels, Jesus dying on the cross, and he speaks these words just for the person next to him. The moment where Jesus is being arrested, there's a guard whose ear has been cut off, and Jesus kneels down and heals just that person. Jesus always is ready to make time for just one more. And so in the midst of everything else Jesus has on his mind, he goes back to Thomas and he gives him exactly what he asked for. A week later, the disciples are in the house again. This time Thomas is with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Awkward silence from Thomas. But then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand, put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. So Jesus gets it. He knows how incredible and unbelievable his resurrection seems. Even though the whole Old Testament predicted that this would happen. 
Even though Jesus specifically predicted many times he would rise after three days, he did all these miracles, they knew he came from God, still, I mean, this is a big deal. This is a hard thing to comprehend, to take this all in. Jesus gets it. And yet he does share just a little bit of a warning. Right? He says to Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed, and I'm glad that you've believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What does Jesus mean by this statement? Well, quite simply, I think he means that proof is not always going to be an option. I mean, eyewitnesses and evidence and all of this is important. I mean, this is why God compiled the Bible the way he did, especially the New Testament, especially the Gospels. And yet the fact remains that for many of the greatest, biggest things about God, we don't have witnesses, we don't have evidence. The biggest things about God can't necessarily be seen and proven. They must simply be accepted by faith. I'll give you a few examples. How do you know that your name is written in God's book of life and that you are God's child? God's told you that, but how do you know? Would it make you feel better if you could see the book? How do you know that your sins are actually forgiven? That God's not going to change his mind and still hold some of them against you? Could you fly to heaven and talk to God and, and then you would know? How do you know he's telling the truth? How do you know that God is going to raise your body from the dead at the last day? So he raised Jesus' body, but how do you know he's going to raise yours? Would it make you feel better if you had a time machine and you could go in the future and see it, and then would that be certainty? You see what I mean? Or let's bring it back to earth a little bit. How do you know that when your friend is sick, God has promised he's going to work all things for the good of those who love him, right? How do you know that God is actually going to use your friend's terrible sickness for their spiritual benefit and the growth of his kingdom? How could God prove that to you, what he's going to do through your friend's life, maybe affecting people for generations to come? How can God prove that? Or how do you know that God is not going to let you lose your faith? How do you know that God is going to hold you secure no matter what life throws at you? How do you know that nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God? How could God prove that for you? I mean, do you see the point? God proved his love for us when he sent his one and only son to suffer hell and die on the cross for us. And then God proved that this was all legitimate and real and Jesus' words were true by raising him from the dead for our justification. Then God proved to you his commitment to you in baptism when he put his name on you when he called you into his family, claimed you as his own. God has given you these things, but, but as we move forward, like, what more proof can we possibly want? As God leads us and guides us through this life, he's not really in the business of calling a timeout every 30 seconds and doing another little miracle just so that we can have reassurance that this particular path is the way that God is leading us. Like, at some point, we've just got to trust him. At some point, we've just got to trust him. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, we are given a great definition of what this looks like. It says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. And this is what the ancients were commended for. So who are the ancients? It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Moses, 
Enoch. These guys did not get to stand in the empty tomb of Jesus. These guys did not get to hug Jesus after he rose. They did not get to put their finger into the nail wound in his hand and have irrefutable evidence that, that this had happened. It wasn't going to happen yet for thousands of years. But they knew the character of their God. They knew the promises he had made. And they trusted him. And this is what God calls all his children to do. He calls us to trust him. And here's the good news. To trust God. You don't have to dig down deep and somehow bring up this trust out of yourself. Trust, faith, is a gift that God gives to us by his Holy Spirit working through his word. And this is what John says at the end of our reading. The Holy Spirit working through his word. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not recorded in this particular book. But these words are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. These words are written so that you may believe in 2022 in Atlanta. These words are written so that you don't have to be like Thomas on Easter evening, stuck in doubt and obstinately denying what was right in front of his eyes, so Jesus has to make a whole special re-resurrection appearance just for him. These words are written so you don't have to spin your wheels in doubt and skepticism about the resurrection, but instead you can move forward onto the incredibly important mission of sharing with the world the good news, not just that Jesus rose, but that it means God has forgiven us. It means we get to go to heaven for free. That this is the kind of self-sacrificing God we have. Instead of spinning our wheels, we can move forward. These words are written so that you can live your life the way that Thomas ultimately lived the rest of his. Are you familiar with the end of Thomas's story? Fifteen hundred A.D. European explorers landed on the western coast of India. They were incredibly excited, mostly because they had developed a new trade route for spices, but they were also excited because they were going to bring the gospel to the heathen. They had missionaries on their ships and they were ready to share the good news of Jesus with all these lost villagers far from God. So they got to the western coast of India. As their missionaries started to interact with the natives, they noticed something that they found quite surprising. Many of these natives were already Christians. In fact, there were tons of Christians. At this time in history, there were approximately 2.5 million Christians in Western India alone. And they were organized into a detailed system of parishes and congregations. They had beautiful old church buildings as old as any of the ones in Europe, dating back a thousand years before this time. So you know, these European missionaries ready to convert the heathen like they just couldn't believe what they were seeing. As far as they knew, Westerners had never set foot in this part of the world before. Like how did all these people become Christians? Well, according to Indian tradition, it started in the first century AD when a random Jewish man appeared at their shores, having traveled there all the way from a place called Jerusalem. And through an interpreter, he was able to share the good news about this man named Jesus Christ, who was actually the son of God and had proved it by rising from the dead. That random Jewish man's name was Thomas. 
It was Thomas. So apparently when Jesus appeared to his disciples that last time before he ascended and he gave them his great commission, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. Apparently Thomas took that very seriously because we know the other disciples traveled throughout what today would be Europe and Greece and Turkey, but Thomas traveled 3,000 miles to India and he founded some of these churches which are still in existence today. In fact, today, there are more than 1,000 churches in Western India alone which bear the name St. Thomas. How did these churches get there? Well, they're there because Jesus didn't give up on his disciples. Right? Jesus bent over backwards. He gave him all the proof he could possibly need, turning his doubt and skepticism into confidence and joy. And today, through his powerful word, Jesus continues to do that same thing for each one of us. May God bless us now as he sends us out as his resurrection witnesses to our world. God grant it for Jesus' sake. Amen. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your risen Savior. Amen. <laughs>